Good morning, church. Uh, good morning to those of you that are joining us as online as well. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're uh, new to North Sub, um, you're coming at the end of a series that we've called You Are Here. You can see the signs plastered up. You see the, uh, the slide there with the idea of a map. If you were to enter a new space, there might be a map greeting you, telling you where you are, and it might help you get to where you need to be. Um, you're at the end of our series that we've been looking at uh, how to take a sober assessment of the assurance of our salvation. Uh, we've been looking at the tests in the book of First John, which, um, which confirm um, or ask us uh, how we might confirm through these tests um, and strengthen our assurance. Those tests are the obedience test, which is ethical in nature. This recognizes that there is a relationship that we have with sin that's new. And where uh, that new relationship asks us or we ask ourselves to, to turn away from sin, whereas previously maybe we didn't have that relationship where we wanted to turn away. And that would be a confirming source of assurance. The second test, which we've gone over, is the belief test, which is doctrinal in nature. This recognizes that faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is a confirming source of faith. Today we're going to be looking at the love test, which is social in nature. As you listen today, I, I want us to ponder this question. Is love an action or is it an emotion? And how would we show love to those around us? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, our hearts are open to you today. Our desire is for you to know us and us to know you. To you, nothing is hidden. We ask that you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Never love anyone who treats you like you're ordinary, Oscar Wilde. It doesn't matter if the guy is perfect or if the girl is perfect, as long as they are perfect for each other. Goodwill hunting. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. The notebook. You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. It's a wonderful life. I just love how she makes me feel like anything is possible, like life is worth it. 500 days of summer. Arguably the best of the bunch from the Princess Bride. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. Are these hitting the mark? Is love something only reserved for people that treat you as if you're extraordinary? Is love reserved for those who are perfect? Is love becoming what that other person is, even if it's a bird? Giving them whatever they want, even if it's the moon? Or is love how you feel? The mantra of our day is kind of all of these things and none of these things. 
Because anything defined by itself is actually self-defeating. It's a circular definition. It doesn't give us the definition. It's based on what sounds good at the time. Love is love. It's a classic English 101 mistake where you give a definition by using the word in the definition. It's like if I were to explain what a circular, defini uh, circular definition is to you by defining it as a definition which brings you in circles. It doesn't help. So, uh, where are we left with that circular definition of love is love? The secular world would have us believe love is love. It's easy for anyone to make this kind of mistake when there's no foundational truth. When there's no ultimate authority and when there's only a matter of opinion and whether or not I agree with your opinion or you agree with my opinion. Oftentimes, secular sayings such as these sound like common sense, but they're actually not. They stem from Christian beliefs. And when you take away the foundation of that Christian belief, as Rebecca McLaughlin puts it, it's like a cartoon character running off of a cliff and they continue running for a while until they realize they have no sure footing underneath them and they fall. Because we believe in the authority of Scripture, we're going to turn to it for guidance on all things, even the matter of love. Will you turn with me to 1 John? Chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. It's a small book near the back of your Bible. If you are using the Bible from the seat in front of you, it will be on page 1084. Now, as you're turning to there, I want to give a quick preview uh, where we've gone and where we're going We've looked at the obedience test, which is ethical in nature, the belief test, which is doctrinal in nature, and today we're going to look at the love test, which is social in nature. And we're going to use a familiar format. If you've been with us through these, this sermon series, we're going to follow this format where we ask the question first, what is the love test that John writes about? Why is this love test valid for us? And what if I'm not sure if I pass that test? Reading from the CSB. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us the spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God had for us. God is love. 
And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is also, so are you, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother and sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So first, what is the love test? It's kind of hard to miss John's focus when reading this message. Let us love one another. Love is from God. Everyone who loves does not love. God is love. love God's love. Love is consistent. Or it consists. We love God. He loved us. If God loved, love one another. If we love his love, the love that God has, God is love, remains love, is made. Made in love, complete in love. We love, loved us. I love God. Love his brother. Cannot love God. Who loves God? Love his brother and sister. I think we know what John's focus is here. The target of John's message in this writing is love. But of all of the times John speaks about love, he doesn't define it for us. John tells us where it's from. It's from God, because God is love. He tells us how it's revealed through the sending of the Son. He tells us what it consists of that it consists of God's love to us and not the other way around. And he even tells us what it isn't. He said there's no fear in love. But he doesn't give us a definition. That's because his purpose in this text isn't to define love, but it's to describe the love test. In order for us to know what the test is, and then to later know if we've passed the test, we have to define it. And I know of no better place to do so than in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn it, and I'll, I'll post it on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge— and if I have faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is just the first section of chapter 13. I call this the knots of love, not K-N-O-T, but N-O-T, because it gives us a list of things that love is not. Love is not something you possess. It's not your speech. It's not even angelic speech. It's not the gifts that you've been given, even if they're from God. It's not your faith, and it's not even your generosity, even to the point of giving up your body. So what is it? Let's read on. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. 
bears all things, yet believes all things, yet hope all, hopes all things and endures all things. We're going to focus on this list in a second. Keep this one in your mind as we move on to the final passage of chapter 13. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, face to face, I now know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. A quick commentary on this ending section. Many things around us will end, even the gifts of God like prophecy and tongues, but love will not. Now let's look back at the, not at the not, but at what is love, and we might get a, a better working definition for our test. Do you notice something about this list that is written by Paul on what li love is? Do you notice that each of the descriptors of what love is, is a descriptor of something you can do? The mantra of our day is, love is love, which is something that cannot be measured. How do I measure what love is if love is itself? It just loops back on itself, and each person is then left to define love for themselves. But what John writes are action items. Each, um, or sorry, what Paul writes here in Corinthians is our action items. Each of these are something that I can measure, something that I can test. So when John says, let us love one another, I now have a standard of measurement for which I can measure myself against. Think with me right now a person that you interact with regularly and ask yourself, have I been patient, kind, or have I been envious and boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, irritable? Have I been keeping a record on this person? Or do I find joy in the truth or unrighteousness? Your answer to those questions reveals something inside each one of us that John seems to think is equated to loving one another. And that's abiding. Abiding means to remain, to stay, or to reside. So when we sing a lyric like, I have no fear with thee at hand to bless, ills have no weight and tears no bitterness, where is death's sting, O where grave thy victory, I triumph still if thou abide with me. What you're really singing is that you're going to triumph still if God remains with you. Abide means to remain, to reside. I did a brief survey of the word in the ESV translation because the CSB uses remain in your version. If you're reading the Bibles in your seat, it says remain instead of abide. It's a more common term, so abide is, is not going to show up nearly as much as remain because I could say I remained at the park, but that doesn't mean I abided in a park. It's not the same um, 
the, the same feeling of the word. So I did a survey of the ESV, and this is the pie chart that came up. I haven't labeled it for you. I want to do a little test. Uh, this covers both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Larger parts of the pie equate to more usage of that word per book. So a larger section means a higher percentage of the word usage. The Psalms contain more verses than any other book in Scripture. And the book of Jeremiah has the highest word count than any other book in Scripture. By contrast, the book we're reading today, 1 John, is tiny. Depending on the Bible you're reading from, if you flip back one or two pages, you might be in a new book. That's how small it is. So looking at this pie chart, which book of the Bible do you think has the largest piece of the pie? 1 John, the Gospel of John uses um, a remaining and a abiding, but the word abiding isn't used as often in the ESV. Gospel of John is great, but 1 John has the largest ESV word count of the word abide. And here's another way that you can picture that. If pie charts don't do it for you, maybe bar graphs do. 1 John, through the roof. With a count of 23 times in just a matter of pages. Take a look at how many times John uses this abiding language. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. 13, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. In the end of 16, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. It's clear from John's writing that if you love, there is an indwelling reality between the God of love and you. And you and the God of love. When you love by showing patience, kindness, rejoicing in the truth, you're actually providing evidence that the God of love is in you and that you are in him. But why this test? Why the love test? Because God is many things. He's not just love, is he? He's also righteous. He's also merciful. He's also just. He's holy. So why the love test if he's so many things? John could have picked a number of traits to define this test, yet he chose love. I don't think he felt pressure from the culture of that day that love seemed to sound best to him, so he just went with it, or that he picked randomly. Rather, I believe that he contends with many others close with God, that out of all of God's defining qualities, love is most at his heart. John agrees with Paul, who elevates the quality of love at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we just read, when he says three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and calls which one the greatest? Love. John argues, or, uh, sorry, agrees with the psalmist who wrote uh, 26 times in Psalm 136, God's love 
endures forever. Not his grace, not his just uh, nature, his love. John agrees with Jesus. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies with two, both centered on love. If you were to rank all of God's qualities, all of his traits, love would be in the number one spot. It would be on the top of the list. It could be argued, at least in part, that this is because the other qualities, like being just, like being gracious, stem out from being a loving God. After all, wouldn't it be unloving for a just God to let things go unnoticed or unchecked? Scripture even speaks to that, that he is full of justice, but even his justice is called strange work in the book of Isaiah. It's not his go-to method of dealing with things. Love is, and it's out of love that he does that strange work of justice. History, too, tells us that judgment is something that God is more reluctant to do, but it's not the same with love. Love is his top-ranking and overarching quality, which out of everything flows. So it only makes sense that he would want us to follow suit if we belong to him. Just as John made no effort to hide what the test is here, he makes no effort to hide what it means. All of the abiding language that we looked at is expected because he calls us his children. And when you decide to follow God, there is something imprinted on you and on me that changes your heart forever. You can think about it this way. Have you ever met someone who behaves just like mom or dad? When they do, you say the apple doesn't fall far from that tree. You might say, oh, your laugh reminds me of your mom. Or you smile just like your dad. Wouldn't it be great if the world said, wow, you remind me of the love of God? If they saw how we love. The amazing thing here is that if we act like the family of God, we make God visible. Our love to one another is in part participating in the love of the Trinity and making the invisible visible. If we've been filled with the Holy Spirit and we are loving on others who also have the Holy Spirit, we are participating in what C.S. Lewis liked to call the dance, where the persons of the Trinity have forever been dancing in love with one another. And this is just one reason to even believe in the Trinity. You could ask the question, how could God be loving forever if he was only one? The way that C.S. Lewis puts it is, God is love, has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. So the test, if we are his children and he is in us, is not only valid, but completely necessary. The God of love that has existed in love for all of eternity past has created you, has filled you with his spirit. He calls you his own. 
He calls you his children. And we ought to be like apples who haven't fallen far from that tree. Unfortunately, we have fallen when we ate from a different tree. As much as we desire to follow God's commands, we do so imperfectly. And let's face it, people, especially broken people, are sometimes difficult to deal with. I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself for something. Um, I'm going to ask some raw questions, and I want you to participate with me. Prepare yourself. Question number one. Who knows a Christian they dislike? You can be honest. My hand's up. Okay. Who knows a Christian that dislikes them? By making you take the survey, I might be adding to my numbers today. Sorry if you're in that group. Hating and not liking are not the same thing. In the first message of this series, Pastor Tim showed a lot of verses in 1 John that are troubling to many Christians when they're seeking the assurance of their salvation. And verse 20 in our passage is one of those. It says, if, if, I love, if anyone loves God yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Because people will think that to love someone means liking them at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. If we go back to our definition, however, you'll remember that love isn't your emotions. It's not your feelings towards another person. It's an action. So we can choose to act in love even when the person we're acting towards doesn't always evoke a loving feeling from us. Even when it's not that lovable person. We can choose to act in love. That doesn't make it easy, though. Many of us may still be le left wondering, well, I'm not sure if I can pass this test. We need to pass this test not because it triumphs the others, but because it actually helps prove the others. Loving when it's difficult proves my doctrinal belief in the God of love. Loving when it's difficult proves my obedience to that doctrine and to that God. But we can't follow the greatest commandment to love God unless we follow the second, to love others. If we cannot love those we see, how will we love that which we cannot see? John Stott says it like this. I think he voices it very clearly, and I would not have been able to put better words to this. He says, it's easier to love a visible man than it is to love an invisible God. If we fail at the easier, how much harder is it going to be to complete the harder one? Loving our neighbor is not just a prerequisite, but it's a training of your heart and of your soul. Therefore, we are delusional if we think we can love God without loving our neighbor. Put it another way, if you can't carry out the lesser requirement of loving others who you can see, you can't carry out the greater requirement of loving God whom you can't see. So maybe right now you're feeling like you're in one of these three camps. 
camp A, he says, yes, I affirm the love test and that I'm following it to the T. My actions are loving towards everyone I meet, and I am now, at this point, more confident than I ever have been in my place before God. And praise God if you're there. You might feel like you're in camp B, <coughs> where you say, I don't think I love others. In fact, I might even hate others, even other Christians. What can be said if you feel like you're in that camp is that at least according to John, you may not be evidencing the proof that you are abiding with the God of love. I think many of us might fall into camp C, however. Somewhere in the middle, where you might be thinking something along these lines. Well, I've been trying really hard. I feel like I love God. I devote myself to him. I'm trying my best to love others, even my brothers and sisters in Christ, but so often I question whether even they're believers because of what I see in their life and their actions. I can't seem to even cope with some of the things that they say. I struggle so much with their political view. I wrestle with their stance on education reform. I can't put up with the way that I see them treating other people. How can they hold that different theological view? How can I not be help but be angry at them for the ways that they've been acting? Aren't I justified in believing that what's happening is wrong? If that's you, I have some reassurance for you that you're not the only person who struggles, and you're not alone. In fact, we have a wealth of examples of Christians not always finding it easy to get along with other Christians. Paul and Barnabas split ways after a sharp disagreement because they could not decide on John Mark, whether he should travel with them. Paul corrected Peter in front of a crowd about his eating habits. How loving do you think it was when the disciples were bickering about who was the greatest? Doubting where you're at in how you're loving to others isn't necessarily proof that you're on the wrong side of this thing. Perfection in love is not the standard that needs to be achieved in order to pass this test, or any of these tests, for that matter. If perfection was needed in obedience, then we'd all be done for. If perfection was needed, Jesus wouldn't have needed to encourage his listeners by saying even a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain. Because it's not the strength of your faith that saves, but the object of your faith. If it were perfect love that was needed, then Jesus would be the only human to have ever existed to fit the bill. And that's why we turn to him. You and I can't possibly love perfectly, but we trust in the one that does. Now, people are trying to find out how to complete themselves all over in our society and around the world. The importance of the self and doing whatever pleases you has never been more prevalent. But here we see what truly makes us complete, what truly makes us whole, and what drives fear out. If you look at verse 18 with me, you'll read that there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. 
So what is the fear that's being driven out here? It's the kind of fear that worries about an eternal damnation. Because if my focus is on loving others, I draw my own spotlight away from me and on to other people. I draw the attention off of myself from myself. So since the spotlight is no longer on me and I no longer have to be worried about me all the time, I'm now directing my love towards others and acting in a way that God ordained and designed me to. To be thinking and acting for the benefit of others, to love them. I'm no longer worried then about what the end holds for me because I'm acting and living in the way that God designed me to be. To be thinking of others out of love because of his love for me. You're reminded of the love that God has for you through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave for you so you can hold on to his sacrifice and point that spotlight to others. And by working in the way that he's designed you to, to be evangelizing and discipling and sharing the gospel to other people, you're focusing on others and sharing with them the hope that they can have when the end is near. This fear that you may be feeling is driven out by love because you remember what is done for you and you can sing, my sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Blessed rest, blessed hope, oh my soul. People's souls are in anguish and they're searching for rest. They're searching everywhere to find it, and they can't get it. They don't feel complete. It's because it's not out there. But it's in here. And if you're seeking assurance in your career, if you're seeking ultimate hope through what your children might become one day, if you're seeking the ultimate fulfillment of your life in a spouse or a significant other, None of those things are going to give your soul blessed rest or blessed hope. Only Jesus Christ can, because he is the invisible God of love made visible, perfectly loved us to the point of death so that we could live. I wish that the people who penned the lyrics that we talked about earlier could hear the love that Jesus has for them, the love that God poured out for them. Maybe to Oscar Wilde, he said, you know, never love anyone who treats you like ordinary. He might hear that the God of the universe treats him extraordinarily, that he calls him his own, that he loved him before he was even knit in the womb. It doesn't matter if the guy is perfect or the girl is perfect, as long as they're perfect for each other. Despite our imperfections, the gospel says that a perfect God chose to die for you. You're a bird, I'm a bird. A perfect, holy God condescended to become a human, like you and like me, to become acquainted with grief to be mocked and scorned, to prove and to show the action of his love through his sacrifice and for his desire for intimacy with you and with me. If you want the moon, just say the word. I'll throw a lasso around it, pull it down.
Jesus Christ has already given you more than you or I could dare ask for him. I love how she makes me feel like anything is possible, like life is worth living and worth it. Without a God that created with purpose, there would be no point in this life. We would be here because of random chaos if God doesn't exist. But there is a triune God that created out of love, that extends an offering of grace and forgiveness and redemption, and that makes not only life worth it, but eternal life worth it and waiting for you at the end. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. My friends, death didn't stop true love. It proved it. And his death brings you eternal life. Love for others is a, cons uh, a confirming source of assurance. We accept Jesus' death on our behalf. And when we do that, the love that he shows us, we then show to others. The big idea for today is to show others the love that God has for you by showing love for them. If you're seeking something in your life, if you don't feel quite yet complete, I beg you to seek the God of love. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. He desperately desires to abide with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant that your word would be written on our hearts. Make our affections pure. May we be filled with a love and a reverence for you that causes us to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and to love you without fear. Amen. I don't think we can walk away from a text like this without at least in part putting it to practice. So I want to make an ask of you. Um, to, to think, to reflect, and then to pray with me right now. Thinking about how Jesus said, there's no greater love than this to lay down one's life, and then he, you know, after defining it as an action, then does that action. He lays down his life. And while doing so, while committing the greatest act of love, he's on the cross and he prays for those who are hurting him. He shows grace and mercy to the thief next to him. In response to what we've heard today, let's just take a few moments to think about someone in our life that needs to see the love of God. Maybe it's someone you personally haven't shown a great love to. Who is it in your life that God wants to show himself through your love? this week. I'm going to pray first a hymn. Uh, 
the hymn, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. I'm going to pray that over us and then pause for personal reflection and personal prayer. And after a few minutes, I'll close us for our closing worship. Heavenly Father, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We pray that our unity will one day be restored. Will they know that we are Christians by our love? Will they know we are Christians by our love? We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we will guard each one's dignity to save each one's pride. They will know we are Christians by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. loved us with a deep and holy affection and our love is nothing in comparison we confess and ask for your forgiveness when we fall short of your holy and lovely standard we praise you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross Lord thank you for sending us a perfectly loving We ask that you help us to love as you do. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.